Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing this weekend's Queensland state election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Sean Ratcliffe. Sean is a lecturer in political science at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, where he researches and teaches public opinion, data science, political strategy, and research design. Hello, Sean. How you doing? And my second guest is Glenn Keffin. Glenn is a lecturer in political science in the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Ben. So the Queensland state election will be held this Saturday, and it will be the biggest election in Australia since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and also the biggest election we've had since last year's federal election. There have been record high levels of people voting early, so Saturday will really just be the culmination of a voting period. Sean, where do the parties stand in the latest polls? Yeah, so a big difference between the Queensland election and, and the 2019 federal election you just mentioned is there's been a lot less polling done. Uh, than we see in a national election, and even a bit less than maybe we saw the last state elections in uh, Victoria and New South Wales. So we haven't seen a lot, but what we have seen the last few months has really suggested uh, not a lot of change at the two-party preferred level, at least, uh, since the last election, and a pretty close or pretty tight contest. So uh, we just had a news poll come out uh, at the start of the week, and it puts it at practically 50-50, so slight lead for the LNP at 50.5%, compared to 49.5 for Labor, but that's within the margin of error. So it's suggesting it's neck and neck. Uh, but other recent polls, so we had a, a survey from uh, YouGov, which is the same company that does news poll for the Australian. Um, they had a slight Labor lead, 52 to 48. Once again, uh, when, we, when we look at margin of error and things, it, it starts to get a bit tight anyway, but uh, a slight Labor lead a month ago. I'm not sure anything's really changed in the last month, so that's probably statistical noise. But then if we go back a few months earlier, uh, the last survey I know before that one, which I think was about five months ago now, had um, 52-48, but LNP leading. So we're sort of getting some mixed messages, but I'd say the one constant is it's looking close. If you look at the breakdown by parties, uh, it's, it's often a bit hard to judge where the Greens stand. They've been reasonably steady during this term, maybe about where they were last election. We don't, there's not a dramatically big change. It does look like One Nation is polling less than they were polling at the beginning of the year last year. Uh, They polled 13.7% in the last state election and the last two polls have had One Nation on 9%. So it's not a total collapse in their vote. It's not a catastrophic destruction of the party as we've sometimes seen in the past, but it does indicate maybe a little bit of a dip in their fortunes. Uh, Minor parties in general might be down. In Queensland, One Nation dropping the most. Uh, there are a lot of seats that look like the One Nation vote. So if we look at some of the seat polling and regional polling, the One Nation vote actually has dropped quite a bit in some areas, um, halved or more in a lot of cases. Greens vote maybe looks like it's down in a lot of the state, but maybe not where it counts in some of the inner city seats where it might be up. Uh, so there's a bit of noise there, but it does look like a shift to the major parties on the primary vote, but then not a lot of movement, two-party preferred. Let's talk about those seat polls. So uh, we've had a we've had a handful of them. We've had a few in inner city electorates where the Greens are contesting. Although my understanding is those seats tend to be particularly inaccurate in the past when we've had seat polls. Like seat polls in general, sometimes get it right, sometimes don't. But there's a, there's a long history of seat polls being way off the mark in terms of races where the Greens are running. Seat polls in general generally aren't good. One of the reasons is they often have a small sample size. So often when we look at national or state polls, we're often looking at sort of a sample size of around 1,000 respondents. A lot of the time, because 
good quality surveys, at least, are expensive, uh, seat polls often have a smaller sample size of four or 500. And the ones we've seen in Queensland have mostly been 400-person um, surveys. Uh, one thing, though, that the recent, I, I suspect you're thinking of the um, recent news poll, seat polls, um, which were done uh, 20th to 22nd of October, um, they were, what is, what's interesting about them is they were actually um, live interview call uh, phone polls. Uh, so most seat polls are robopolls. So when you often see newspapers write up seat polls, they're, they're robos, and they tend to have the, the lowest quality um, results, mainly because their response rate is terrible. So the average robopoll probably has a response rate of about 4% or so, 3%. So when you think for every 100 people they call with a robopoll, and, and for those of you listeners that I suspect most of you listeners know what a robopoll is because you know we're all nerds here, but... Um, for those that don't, it's a pre-recorded message that you get called. You get called with a pre-recorded message, and you're asked to press one if you're vote, voting Liberal, two if you're voting Labor, three if you're voting Greens, and most people hang up. So every hundred or so people called on those, maybe only about three or four actually finished the survey. Um, so the problem with that is you often get a lot of bias in the results. So young men, in particular, have a terrible response rate with robopolls. Um, it's also hard to get some people because. Um, they've moved recently, so so you've got they, most companies use um, consumer file data collected from things like um, credit reports and frequent flyer memberships and things. And young renters tend to not have up to date details in those, and they they move around a lot. They're less likely to have credit cards. Plus, those inner city seats would tend to cover a much smaller. You know, you can move around and move between a dozen different electorates, whereas if you live in a country town, you might move house, but you'll probably still be in the same electorate. So there's a bunch of problems with robopolls in particular and seat polls in general. And you're right, in some instances, inner city seats, which tend to have younger uh, populations on average, more likely to have renters. And then, as you say, they cover a smaller area. So you move three kilometres and you may have crossed the boundary. Um, so they, 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 there are problems. These live polls that, that YouGov have run for news poll might be slightly higher quality or, or maybe even a lot higher quality than some of the robos we've seen in the past. So my understanding is YouGov won't run um, robopolls for seat polls anymore. So that's one of the reasons why we've got these live caller polls for these seat polls, which are more expensive. So that's why they're not normally used. They cost a lot more than robos. The South Brisbane seat poll, what I found really interesting, besides just the dynamics and the sort of the general discussion about the Greens, was the 8% undecided. Um, I think that's that's pretty significant, right, that, they, that there is that that pretty significant portion of voters there who still hadn't made their mind up. And if I remember correctly, that 8% undecided in South Brisbane seemed higher than in some of the other seats they polled. So, I, you know, that's pretty significant that, you know, there is that pocket of voters there. And while it looks like the Greens primary is very strong, you know, that 8% of undecided voters, that could that could decide the, the contest, right? The other kind of polling we saw, which I thought was quite interesting, was regional polls. So, you know, there's there's a lot of seats that could be in play in this election, right? There's dozens of seats that have at least a theoretical possibility of being marginal. But we had, um, you know, in the end, you're not going to get quality polls, re- certainly repeat quality polls for all of those seats. You'd be lucky if you get a couple. But those regional polls were quite interesting. We've only had one round of them. Were they from YouGov? Yeah, so the only surveys I've seen for Queensland have all been YouGov. They're either NewsPoll branded, which are run by NewGov, or they're, they're YouGov branded for Courier Mail. Yeah, so we've seen polls that cover the Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, and sort of regional Queensland. And 
I believe it showed Labor doing worse in regional areas and having a bit of an uptick on the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast, where they generally have done pretty badly in the past. So that was an interesting perspective. It plays into the story that we think there might be differential swings in different parts of the state here. You know, Labor holds a very slim majority in this election, and it seems quite plausible that they'll lose some seats in some areas of the state, but then they'll be gunning to try and win seats somewhere else to compensate for those. Yeah, look, I think that's what a lot of people are assuming Saturday night is going to look like, that we're going to have these contradictory sort of patchwork results. And even considering those regional polls, you know, I, I, I giggled when I when I saw them because it's kind of like Queensland is the, the state for regions within regions, right? Like it's it's complexity multiplied where, you know, people talk about North Queensland, but it's actually North Queensland, far North Queensland and so on and so forth. But also there's a difference between the urban electorates of Cairns and Townsville and the um, electorates around those cities. Yeah, so like a seat like Townsville compared to a seat like Barron River, um, you know, there's a pretty significant difference there about those outer city seats around Townsville and Cairns. It's a, it's a very different dynamic there. So there is, I guess, a sense and uh, an expectation that uh, if Labor is going to lose some of those seats around Townsville, those three Townsville seats, and potentially some of the seats around Cairns, like Barron River, then they're going to need to compensate somewhere. And that's why we've seen them obviously make a bit of a move on the Gold Coast and there's a sense in a lot of the reporting up here right now that Labor's chances on the Gold Coast um, are slowly increasing and that we're starting to see a bit of a change in the dynamics of Queensland. Um, but again, even for the LNP, there's all sorts of challenges, complications. The Catter story is one which is really significant. Um, so there's the challenge of Catter for the LNP, but then you've also got the challenge of One Nation, and then you've got the challenge of the the outer metropolitan seats, um, whether that's um, a seat like Palmerstone, or whether it's a seat where there's independence running, like in Ujuru. So that it's really, really complicated, as is always the case with Queensland, and the path to majority government for either of the major parties, it's pretty narrow. And it looks like there's going to be a bit of noise in regional Queensland too. So it looks like One Nation's vote is dropping quite a bit, at least according to the YouGov poll, but we don't have any other data. Um, but then it's sort of, where does that go at the moment? It sort of looks like it's going everywhere, but um, we're talking about small numbers here. So that whole, that regional YouGov survey you mentioned, Ben, the whole thing across the whole state was 2,000 respondents. So when they're carving it up into those three regions, I don't know what number of respondents were in, um, were in regional Queensland. I think it was 600. Yeah, right. So we're, we're sort of basing these judgments off 600 respondents and and One Nation, I think, were sort of less than 15% of those. So we're talking about a pretty small number of respondents there. So we really don't know where, assuming that One Nation vote really does drop, like um, the YouGov survey suggests it does, and, and that's believable. It's sort of like, where does that sort of 5% plus um, group of voters, it might be even more than that, go in regional Queensland? and and that can obviously vary in different seats. So some seats, they might go to the LNP. Some seats, they might go to CAP. Who knows? Um, it could be quite messy. And there's a number of seats. I know certainly the Townsville area seats, there's a number of races where One Nation, Qatar, LNP, all polled kind of similar levels at the last election and Labor came through and won. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Mundingborough, um, that 
you know, if if that balance changes, particularly if Cata, I think probably the Cata candidate may be able to attract a stronger flow of preferences than some of the other conservative options. Um, those seats could be quite messy, and it could make a big difference if One Nation gets knocked out. But yeah, Glenn, what, what's your what's your take more generally about uh, how One Nation is looking, both both where they're running and what the polls look like, but also just how the campaign has looked? It appears that um, one of the problems for One Nation in this campaign is that they just haven't received the the oxygen and the coverage in the the media like they have in previous campaigns, where you know the federal election last year. 2017 in Queensland, um, there was a lot more coverage of One Nation in the media and their presence, their stunts, the publicity they would generate would often drive the, the, the media coverage and the news cycle. And that just hasn't been the case in this election. Now, one part of that appears to be that for whatever reason, Hanson has played much less of a role in the actual campaign. Um, and I don't know what's going on there. Um, but I think another part of it is just the context that the election's being fought in. And there's been this much bigger uh, focus and emphasis around COVID. What are the, the parties of government going to do to lead us out of this? Um, and that's been really significant. And um, I think that One Nation, like Cata, have received a lot more attention in the north of the state, but in southeast Queensland in particular, it's been very much about the Palaszczuk v. Frecklington sort of contest, the major parties, um, and much less attention given to One Nation. Let's touch briefly on the Greens. We've talked a little bit about the Greens, but they there does appear to be there's a plausible scenario where they have a bit of a change in their vote that we've seen in other states where their vote goes up in this their vote goes up in the inner urban electorates where they have a chance of winning. And overall though, it stays steady. So it has to go down somewhere else and you see a bit of a concentration of the Greens vote. That's certainly something we've seen in recent Victorian elections. And there are three electorates where uh, there appears to be a good chance for the Greens, one of which they hold, Maywa. Uh, but there is also South Brisbane, which is held by Jackie Trad and McConnell uh, in the centre of Brisbane. Those have been a bit, real focal point of the campaign. A lot of attention has been paid there. And one of the big factors there is that the LNP has chosen to preference the Greens ahead of Labor. So if the LNP comes third, um, their preferences will probably help the Greens in winning those seats. The contest in South Brisbane has, um, as is often the case in these sort of red-green seats, become quite bitter. Um, and um, the uh, Labor and Greens in the area are getting quite vicious with one another. And you can see that obviously in social media and sort of more generally. There is many people in Queensland and especially in Brisbane who are quite bullish on the Greens' chances, not just in South Brisbane, but also in McConnell. And there's also been arguments made that they could um, really see a, a rise in their vote in Cooper as well. Cooper, which is the seat that's held by Kate Jones, uh, who was a minister in the Palaszczuk government, who both lost her seat to and then won her seat off Campbell Newman uh, and who has announced that she's retiring. Yeah, exactly. So I'm more bearish on the Greens' chances. I think South Brisbane is on a knife edge and um, while clearly the preferences and everything is going to flow to the Greens, I'm still sceptical about the number of LNP voters who follow the card um, for a number of circumstances. One is there's so many postals going on pre-poll. We don't know how many how-to-vote cards are being handed out. But also, if you're an LNP supporter over the last 10 years and all you've heard is the Greens are the greatest threat to Australian democracy 
you know, uh, since whatever, um, why would you then preference the Greens? Uh, I, I just, I really question the uh, the the numbers of LNP voters that will follow that. Sure, I'm, I'm sure many will, but I, I really doubt the the effectiveness of that. And I think that that means that Labor still has somewhat of a chance in South Brisbane. Um, the Greens have run enormous field campaigns again. Like I've been told that they've had over 10,000 conversations in South Brisbane, over 7,000 in McConnell. So they're doing all the things that the Greens are good at. Um, and yes, the, 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 the sense in Brisbane is that their support is increasing, but, uh, I think we still need to see the, the runs on the boards, on the board for the Greens, um, in South Brisbane. And I think it would be a, a disappointment for the, for the party if they didn't win at least South Brisbane as well as hold on to Maywa. Liberal voters are actually the most likely though to generally follow how to vote cards. So, um, if, if any party is going to get its voters to vote, how they normally wouldn't, it's probably the Liberal Party. And I think in some other Labor versus Greens contests, the, the Liberal how to vote has made a bit of a difference. So it's it's possible. I think it depends on the primary votes uh, in South Brisbane, but Jackie Trad's been in a lot of trouble. It does seem quite plausible that the Greens will come first on the primary vote, in which case they don't need LNP preferences to win them the seat. They just need those LNP preferences to be neutralised. Um, and I think that's what you might say. You might say a 50-50 split or maybe even a 60-40 split to the Greens. There was a news poll in South Brisbane. Now it's only 400 respondents, so so there's a margin of error there. But it did have the Greens ahead on first preference by a few points, so 39 to 32 against Labor. So if if that result was replicated, and I'm not suggesting it will be any, it will be exactly that, um, Labor would need nearly two-thirds of the preference flow from the remaining candidates to win the seat. So they'd have to not just get half; they'd have to get almost sixty, almost two thirds, a bit over sixty percent of the preference flows uh, to win. Now, maybe they can do it, but I wouldn't want to be behind by um, seven points on first preferences if I was Jackie Trad. No, I agree. I think you'd want it to be more around thirty-six, thirty-five, or something like that in that territory, and then maybe you have a chance. If the Greens' primary is thirty-eight or thirty-nine, they're going to win the seat. That, yeah, Labor have to do extraordinarily well in preferences to win in that instance. One of the other big factors in the election is the rise of early voting. This is a story we've seen, well, really, it's been going on for a decade, but it's been massively accelerated this year with the pandemic. And the latest numbers at the end, we're recording this on Thursday. Um, don't cut that out. As of the end of Wednesday, 28.8% uh, of all enrolled voters have already cast a pre-poll vote. Um, that is already above the level that we saw in 2017, and 26.6% of enrolled voters have applied for a postal vote. Now, not everyone who applies for a postal vote will return it. Some people may have applied for a postal vote and then cast a pre-poll vote, but it does suggest we're on track for certainly a majority of people uh, voting before election day, uh, and that's even before you factor in that some people won't vote. So um, this is a similar thing to what we saw in Brisbane City, and we saw in the state by-elections earlier this year, and we've seen the NT and the ACT. Um, but, Glenn, has this made a difference to the way that the campaign has been run, the fact that, you know, we're, we're a couple of days out and a majority of people have already voted? Uh, I think in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. I, I thought it was going to have a much larger impact than it actually ended up having. One of the things that I've noticed and um, I've been talking to people and getting them to collect 
uh, all this information for me is that there's been a real increase in direct mail. That's something I've, I've noticed in this election. So I think that's one interesting part. And maybe the parties have pivoted towards direct mail and digital, perhaps more than they were originally intending to. Um, but I thought this would also decrease the size and the scale of the field campaigns, but they've still been really significant um, across the state where, you know, Labor's still done over 500,000 direct voter contacts um, on the phones and the doors. That's that's not insignificant in a in a pandemic, right? And, I, uh, you know, I told you about the Greens field campaign. So it, it, it has had an effect, but um, on the other hand, a lot of the, the campaign fundamentals have still kind of remained the same. I guess one of the things that um, has changed, and I question, you know, whether we want to continue on the length of pre-poll, is that um, candidates now are required to be at pre-poll booths for like weeks in advance when, you know, they could be out in the community doing events or doing something else. That's certainly changed the dynamics of what, what is expected of candidates. And I, I'm a little bit torn on whether that's what we want them to do in the long term or whether we should consider shortening the the amount of the pre-poll period. I, I certainly agree with the convenience factor being important, but, you know, there are flow-on effects from having this extended pre-poll. It's a lot to ask for the uh, electoral commissions too, right? Yeah. Well, one thing I've wondered about is, yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but on the other hand, Queensland doesn't have a lot of cases of COVID-19. It hasn't been particularly badly affected. It's not like presidential election in the US where really you have to think there's a good chance you might catch the disease if you're out and about and it feels fairly rational to want to stay home. Part of the thing here is that it's opened up the opportunity. It's made people think about whether they want to vote early. And history has shown over the last decade that once people get a taste of voting early, they like it and they largely stick with it. And I do wonder that, you know, even if the the virus just disappeared, you know, tomorrow we're like, we have a 100% effective vaccine and then the virus is gone and no one ever talks about it again. Probably these, like, people have got a taste for early voting. And so unless there's some kind of intervention to push back against the phenomenon, you'd have to say probably people will keep voting early and, you know, uh, without any change, the status quo will become like a kind of consistent three-week election period. The LNP are only announcing their costings today. Um, you know, a third of the state has already voted. Like, is is that what we want? I mean, maybe we do, maybe we don't care, and we just allow electors to think about the issues, think about the policies, and then that's fine. They, they maybe don't get all of the information that perhaps is going to be presented to them. But it is something I think we need to to think about. Um, and is, is that problematic, potentially? I think Glenn's right that um, there are issues. I think early voting is, is generally a good thing. Um, it would be great if parties, say, released their policies and costings a little bit more than a few days before the election. And maybe if early voting numbers continue to increase, there'll be more incentive for parties to make their announcements a little bit early. Um, I think the idea that the, that the new information may be presented three days or two days before an election is problematic because um, it makes it hard to verify that information for starters. So drop your costings a few days before the election. No one has any time to actually work out whether they make sense. It's a lot to ask um, for electoral commissions because they need to staff those offices. And it's a lot to ask for campaigns who are mostly volunteers um, who have to give up their time. So so I think there's some balance. It might be a week, um, but it, it's generally good. But there are, I think, those problems that, that, that Glenn pointed out. But I think 
the good thing about people voting over, say, a week or more is it does make it harder for, for campaigns to drop big surprises right at the last minute to try and push voters in a particular direction right before the Saturday. Um, it's a lot easier to manipulate um, the news cycle if everyone's voting sort of on one day because it makes it very hard to refute last-minute claims. So, so I think there's a big upside too. Yeah, and I think strategically there's this trade-off, right, where the LNP only releasing their costings today in the last week or so, all Labor have done is filled the gap about what the costings will be by saying, well, they're just going to sack 30,000 public servants, right? And to roll out the uh, the Campbell Newman sort of ooh, scare card, scare tactic again. So they've they've strategically opened themselves up to a Labor scare campaign. Which may backfire for the LNP. Clive Palmer is not running himself, although members of his party are running, but he's he's making his presence felt in this election as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's it's a little bit like 2019 um, reheated in a way. We've got the same misinformation claims about the death tax um, and Clive spending big, sending out text messages across the electorate. Not very uh, precise in the targeting, considering um, academics in Melbourne are receiving these text messages, but he's sending out text messages. He's using digital to spread misinformation that Labor is going to introduce a death tax, which, of course, there's, there's never been any proof to, any, any evidence to support that. So Clive is again playing the spoiler role, and it's very clear that he is, for all intents and purposes, just trying to damage the Labor Party. And beyond that, his, his ambitions here and his goals are kind of ambiguous. Um, he's, again, wasting millions of dollars on uh, a vanity project, effectively. And I think it's time for uh, us to have the conversation about whether this is what we want in our democracy and in our election contest, because it's certainly not what I want. So finally, what are the races that you'll be the most interested in watching on election night, Glenn? There's a number, Ben. Um, so I could I could rattle off about 15 or 20 uh, seats here. I guess personally, I'm really interested in the, the seat of Ujuru. It's a seat that I've been interested in following for a little while, where you've got uh, an independent who seems to be potentially competitive against a, a sitting LNP member. Um, Townsville is going to be critical. So those three seats, Townsville, Thurringar and uh, Mundingborough. And uh, the seats on the Gold Coast I'm also particularly interested in to see if there's something something different, something changing about the nature of Queensland politics. Because I think if we saw Labor start to pick off some of those LNP seats beyond what they already have, so if they were competitive or won seats like Corumban or won Burley, um, I think that could be significant and it could tell us there's something interesting going on um, on the Gold Coast and perhaps the Gold Coast is becoming more competitive for Labor, which I think is a pretty interesting development. Yeah, so just riffing off um, Glenn's comments about the Gold Coast to start with, that would be a big deal if Labor starts to win more seats in that part of the state. That's outside of like actual rural and re- uh, Australia, the Gold Coast is pretty much the best place for the coalition in the country. So if we look at federal seats as well as state seats, um, particularly for the Liberal Party, the, the Gold Coast is like heartland Liberal Party territory. Uh, and it has been for a long time. So if, if Labor starts to make inroads there, that's, that's actually a big deal because that's been a very bad and very difficult um, part of the country for the Labor Party for a very long time. Um, the, the north of Queensland as well, I think, will be really interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with the One Nation vote. Historically, they've struggled to repeat good performances. 
so it'll be interesting to see whether um, the recent surveys uh, are correct and the and the One Nation vote does start to collapse, um, which, you know, based on their history with trying to build a viable party organisation, that seems likely. But if they do manage to retain their vote in that part of the state, you know, that could mean there's some sort of um, sustainable party infrastructure in, in, in North Queensland that can allow them to continue to contest elections or is CAP just going to roll over them and, and take at least a decent share of what was forming up to be a One Nation vote? And then what happens in Brisbane? Um, you know, that's ultimately where a lot of the seats are, obviously in, in less so than other states. Queensland's a bit less uh, decentralised, but it's uh, polling has been really iffy on what's going to go on in Brisbane. It kind of looks like status quo. Is that the case? Um, Labor performed really badly there in 2019 in the federal election. Uh, is that going to be replicated uh, at the state level or are they going to hold their vote? And then inner city Brisbane, you know, if, if Labor loses some of these seats to the Greens, so they're obviously, Maywa was picked up last time. Um, are the Greens going to make inroads in the inner city? If they pick off two, two seats in inner city Brisbane, uh, that makes Labor's job all the harder because they can't afford to lose any seats really. And especially if they start to lose seats somewhere else like Townsville to the LNP, um, to with t- retain government, they can't afford to lose any of these seats. So um, there's going to be, a, I think, a very fierce fight, uh, especially South Brisbane. You know, that, the Jackie Trad um, sort of contest there is is pretty vicious. So, um, And she's obviously been a major player in the Labor government up until very recently. So I think the Labor Party are going to want to hold that seat and, and there's a good chance they won't. So um, I, I'm interested to see if the Greens sort of spread in inner city Brisbane continues as it's done in other states or, or whether maybe they're a bit overhyped, which has been the case in some seats in the past. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Glenn and Sean, for joining me. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Ben. And thanks, Sean. Thank you. Uh, you can find the Tally Room Guide to the Queensland Election in full, published at tallyroom.com.au slash QLD2020. The guide features profiles of all 93 electorates. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.